This episode was recorded when the active COVID-19 cases in India were near an all-time high. Some of the information and statistics mentioned by the guests may have changed since then. This season of On the Contrary is supported by Edelgift Foundation, an organization that works to support the growth of small to mid-sized non-profits working at the grassroots in India. Edelgift's mission is to transform communities by enabling leaders, organizations, and the ecosystem of philanthropy as a whole. Over the last decade, the institution has invested billions of rupees in the Indian development sector and has been leading collaborative action towards building an independent, resilient civil society. Price should not determine who has access to what kind of product. And that's where I think governments and organizations like the World Bank, the regional banks have a large role to play to ensure that whatever is done with intellectual property, it does not limit access to vaccines. See, unlike in the US and other parts of the world, which received substantial public funding for developing the vaccines, okay? In India, none of the vaccine makers got substantial funding for developing the vaccines. And I think a lot of the investments made by the vaccine companies has been uh, at-risk investing. Hi, I'm Shreya Adhikari, and you're listening to On the Contrary by India Development Review, or IDR, a show featuring unlikely conversations on topics that affect our future. On this podcast, hear differing perspectives from leaders and experts as they help us make sense of the most pressing issues of our time. Your host for the show is Arun Myra, a thought leader who has the unusual combination of having worked in the private sector, the social sector, as well as the government, where he was a member of India's planning commission. Here's your host, Arun Myra. For the whole world to be safe from the COVID-19 virus, pretty much the whole world must be vaccinated. 100% vaccination in some countries and little in other countries will divide the world into safe and unsafe countries and will prevent travel and trade between them. Within countries too, a vaccine apartheid can develop if priorities in vaccination are given to those who can afford to pay, while those who cannot must wait for someone to pay for them, whether that's governments or charities. Ethical dilemmas in the global COVID vaccines crisis have raised fundamental questions about the values that are driving institutions. There is a conflict between private and public value in the present intellectual property regime. There are also questions about what role the private sector can be morally expected to play in serving the masses when equity must also be ensured, not just efficiency in production and distribution. And so today, I'd like for us to discuss the strategies in the production and the distribution of vaccines at this time, the fundamental issues that are affecting government decisions all over the world, and how private producers and others are shaping the response of humanity to this virus. 
Both our guests today are at the forefront of the vaccine rollout in India, but they occupy different roles. Dr. Gagandeep Kang is a microbiologist, virologist, and one of India's most eminent medical scientists who played a critical role in the development of the indigenous rotavirus vaccine. She is also the co-author of the book, Till We Win, India's Fight Against the COVID-19 Pandemic. Kiran Mazumdar Shaw is the executive chairperson, Biocon Limited and Biocon Biologics Limited. Under her leadership, Biocon has transformed the way pharmaceuticals are manufactured and produced. And it has been successfully delivering on its promise of making medicines accessible and affordable to millions of patients worldwide. Welcome, Gagandeep and Kiran. It's such a pleasure to have you both here on the show. So I'm going to be asking you the first question, Gagandeep, which is about the criteria and the principles that should be applied when we have something which is in short supply. What are the ethical criteria we should consider and who should be given priority for getting the vaccines? The first principle that is applied is the principle of reciprocity. So who are the people who are at greatest risk of acquiring disease who are needed to be able to provide that health care? And that's essentially healthcare workers. So the first priority group in order to protect our ability to deliver health care and to return to those providers some elements of protection, we have to prioritize healthcare workers. Now, the question even within healthcare workers is who do you do first there? Should it be emergency room doctors and nurses? Should it be researchers? Should it be ASHA workers who are out in the community? Fortunately, we didn't have to make those difficult choices and it was possible to think about immunizing everybody who was a healthcare worker. Then the question that comes next is the one that you've proposed, which is, do we want to save lives? Do we want to make sure that we prevent both severe morbidity and mortality? Or do we want to protect the economy? Or does it need to be a balance of the two? And at what stage do you decide that we've gone far enough with the saving of lives and now we need to think about what we can do to protect the economy. So in most modeling strategies, what has been identified is that if you want a balance between the two, you should be thinking about a strategy that is largely an age descending strategy till you cover the populations that are at greatest risk of dying. And there you come to approximately in different countries, different cutoffs. But in India, 45 is a reasonable cutoff. And then after that, it's not necessary that you immunize absolutely every last person in a priority group. You have to set a percentage that you want to try and achieve. So I think the principles are clear. It's the application that we stumble on quite frequently. The principle of reciprocity that you mentioned, Gagandeep, is crucial for India's vaccine rollout plan. And so, Kiran, I'd like to ask you the same question. 
you operate in the world of production, logistics and distribution of pharmaceutical drugs. According to you, who should be considered essential to keep everyone's lives and livelihoods going? Well, you know, Arun, if you look at it through those kind of lenses, everyone is essential to, you know, society and to the economy. But I think we also have to look at various aspects of essentiality. So, for instance, you know, when we started looking at how do we prioritize in a graded way, who are those that are most vulnerable in the young age group? Let's put it that way. You know, once you get down to the 45-year-olds, who are the ones that are really most vulnerable to infection? Or more importantly for me, it is about spreading the virus. You know, we need to do two things. One is we need to take care of people from getting the infection. And the other thing is, how do we stop the spread of the infection? So from that point of view, you're right. I think we realized that, for instance, in a city like Bangalore, we decided that we ought to look at various populations who are actually vulnerable and who are at high risk. And these include, say, for instance, market vendors, because these are markets which, you know, are catering to hundreds of people coming and buying from them. So we have these huge markets and we felt they had to be a priority group. Secondly, we felt construction workers, they are also very vulnerable. And therefore, we felt they also should be a priority group. We felt all these street hawkers, they also are a priority group. And then, of course, you're right. I mean, when it comes to the economy, we felt that our industry, the pharmaceutical industry, which you're very right, we have to keep producing. And I can tell you that because we were not considered an essential industry for very long, we've lost a lot of production because we did have a large number of infections at the workplace and we've had to shut down operations because of this, you know, in the first wave. And then later on in the early part of the second wave as well. The easiest example is all the vaccine manufacturers obviously were allowed to vaccinate their employees. Uh, and if you hadn't allowed that, that would have been a big mistake. But equally, all the people involved in the supply chain of delivering vaccines, delivering medicines also ought to be considered in that essential list. Thanks, Kiran. Now you introduced an important idea about the spread of the virus and also the vulnerability of people who have to step outside and go to work to survive. And this brings us to the question of who gets access to the vaccines, not only in terms of availability, but also affordability. Whether that's countries who can afford to have enough vaccines to cover everybody, or communities who can afford to buy from private players and no matter the price. Gagandeep, what role do you think the private sector should play here? And when do you think the government should bring in the private players during healthcare emergencies of this magnitude? I think if we look at our healthcare system in general, what we've seen is that our ability to access healthcare, our ability to access screening services, our ability to access preventive services has been linked so far to our ability to pay for those services. The least common denominator is what the government can provide, and that varies by state. Now, the problem that I have with SARS-CoV-2 is that in a situation where you have limited supply of resources, 
should your ability to purchase determine your access at this time or is this something that should come later and it's a complicated question as far as vaccination programs are concerned i think preventive services should be national programs that should be offered to everybody across the board and when supply is limited is not the time to open it up to the private sector for preferential purchase the private sector for distribution is another matter i think if the private sector increases our ability to access populations to be able to deliver vaccines i think that's something that you should partner with the private sector for when you have limited supplies available when we purchase doses we try and make them accessible to more vulnerable parts of the population but is this a situation that we should have been in or should it have been that there was a certain small amount that was discretionary let's say students traveling abroad or certain kinds of populations for whom the government should have made the doses available so that they could be delivered to those people when you have individuals within priority groups that have been imperfectly partially immunized then i think this is not the time to be allowing for that purchase of doses by the private sector i can also think of other situations where you would want the private sector to participate in purchase and for me that would be if we had access to doses that were not going to be used in the national immunization program so for example if you have access to the pfizer vaccine or the moderna vaccine and it's not going to be in the national program absolutely encourage purchase of those doses distribution of those doses but when there is the same product being distributed across different providers then to me i have a problem with that kiran you know the private sector has played a very important role in india's healthcare landscape even before the pandemic at a time like this the question of price regulation by the government becomes crucial what's your view on this should private producers of essential public goods such as vaccines be regulated more firmly by governments what has been your experience especially in the case of covid-19 vaccines you know arun let me start by saying that price control is not something new for our industry i think there is a national price control policy anyway but i think what has happened in the case of vaccines is very very inequitable as far as the industry is concerned see unlike in the us and other parts of the world which received substantial public funding for developing the vaccines okay in india none of the vaccine makers got substantial funding for developing the vaccines and i think a lot of the investments made by the vaccine companies has been at risk investing and i think now that the vaccines are required by the government and the government doesn't want to spend more than it can afford or what it thinks can afford you can't basically put the onus on the vaccine makers and say look it's a national emergency and now you do your bit what about the government doing its bit 
So I just feel that it is unfair to put the burden of guilt on the vaccine makers and basically abdicate from your own responsibility of investing more into buying vaccines. Uh, if you looked at the kind of pricing that the vaccine makers were actually wanting, it was really about three to five dollars. That was what they really wanted. Okay, as a fair price. They were made to reduce their price to $2, which they felt was unsustainable. Now, even the WHO had got into a forward contract with companies like AstraZeneca for $3 for the LMIC countries. So actually $3 at least is the minimum floor price that the Indian government should have actually fixed, I feel. But instead of that, they went down to $2. And what I think the vaccine makers want is roughly about three to five dollars. So I think that was a big mistake that we made right in the beginning to put pressure on the vaccine makers who had already made huge investments and then expecting them to give us further subsidy uh, because we didn't want to pay more. And why can't the government spend more at a time of a pandemic? Because if you look at the investment in vaccines compared to the huge economic erosion that is taking place. You, you recover your economic returns on these vaccine investments in no time. So there was no economic case to be made by forcing prices down in terms of vaccines. That was one aspect. But again, coming back to that question you asked Gagandeep about private sector and the preferential or advantageous procurement of vaccines, I just want to put one thing straight. In Bangalore, we have a very strong public-private partnership model that, you know, Gagandeep referred to, where we as private sector believe that we must vaccinate our employees because they are very fundamental and crucial for our economy and to really make sure that we support jobs. I mean, today, I think keeping those jobs going is going to be very important for the economy. And let, let's also not forget, we are also in a very digital virtual world where many of the services that are required to cater to this work from home or remote working requires the Swiggy home delivery boys. You need many, many such services to keep you going. Now, they also are very vulnerable parts of the population who need to be vaccinated. Okay, so many companies like the Amazons, the Flipkarts, the Swiggies and the Zomatos, the home food delivery companies are also vaccinating their delivery boys and girls. The cab drivers are also vaccinating themselves. Aren't they also, you know, essential services? So I think if you look at it that way, what we also decided was that as a public-private partnership, private companies would definitely, you know, vaccinate their employees. But for every one employee that they would vaccinate, they were prepared to give two doses for the social vaccination programs and in slums, in uh, the markets, in the construction sites, you know, the things I talked about. And that's what we've done very, very effectively in Bangalore. In fact, uh, Gagandeep uh, helped us with prioritizing these vulnerable populations in uh, Bangalore and Karnataka, which has helped a lot. But, you know, my view is it's very good to talk about equity, but there's too much of politics in this pandemics which is also getting away from what we are all trying to do in an ethical way. I think it is still very ethical to vaccinate our employees because I believe they are vulnerable. I think it is very important to vaccinate many other parts of our society who may not be strictly eligible, but they need to be vaccinated. 
At this point, we'll take a small break and we'll hear more from our guests on the other side. Every day in a small village nestled in a hilly corner of the northern state of Uttarakhand, a group of women sit together and sing songs of courage, ambition and resistance. They are members of Gauli Mahila Sangathan, a village collective set up by the women of Gauli. They follow this ritual before every daily meeting. Since 1995, they have successfully led a resistance movement against alcoholism in their area. Ananta Jain, a student of English literature, met them as a part of a rural research program at St Stephen's College in Delhi. She wrote about her experience on Ground Up, a feature section on IDR. Roundup features anecdotal multimedia stories that provide a window into how things operate close to the grassroots within communities amidst frontline workers and even inside government offices. Their stories told by the people closest to the action. If you'd like to read more stories like this, check out Roundup on idronline.org. You can also reach us with stories of your own at groundup@idronline.org. And now back to the show. Kiran, you started by pointing out that Indian companies weren't given adequate support in the development of COVID-19 vaccines, which the international companies got. And so there is a policy matter I want to come to. The patent system in India in the 1970s and 80s, especially with regards to healthcare, encouraged innovation and production at low costs. It did this by allowing the process of production to be patented and not the products, and this was necessary to ensure that medicines and vaccines could be produced affordably at scale. Now, as we enter into a new era of global pandemics, we must rethink the global intellectual property system. Maybe our government is on the right side of the global policy debate to say that we need to look at equity in the intellectual property system. Gagandeep what are your thoughts on this so i don't disagree with that but i have to tell you that i'm also part of a group that's the equitable access committee for the coalition for epidemic preparedness innovations and because cepi was set up to make sure that vaccines reach the countries that were dealing with outbreaks without a consideration for price from the time cepi has been established this committee has been looking at every contract to try and figure out what the balance needs to be between intellectual property the investment that is made by an organization like cepi and making sure that the populations that really need vaccines can get them without price being a barrier to that it's a fine line that you need to walk in this kind of situation because most of the vaccines that cepi is dealing with are cutting edge vaccines cepi is dealing with people who have generated and would like to protect their intellectual property while still making affordable products and the way that it has been dealt with it really depends on what stage the extra public funding comes in 
So if the public funding is coming in at a very early stage, which is the highest risk stage, or it is coming in at a stage where the product has already reached some level of proof of principle and then takes further development forward, you need to have different ways of negotiating so that you respect the inventor's rights, but also make sure that products are affordable. In other words, there's no one size that fits all. The goal is affordable products for the public. How we get to that goal depends very much on what the product is and at what stage you decide to enter into a partnership. In a pandemic, price should not determine who has access to what kind of product. And that's where I think governments and organizations like the World Bank, the regional banks have a large role to play to ensure that whatever is done with intellectual property, it does not limit access to vaccines. Kiran, your organization has been at the forefront of government partnerships when it comes to the development and distribution of pharmaceuticals. What are your thoughts on this issue of intellectual property rights? I think there is a modeling that needs to be done in terms of how do you balance public funding with uh, making sure that you have some level of price negotiations for those products that you have funded. So I think, you know, the advanced purchase contracts that, you know, organizations like COVAX, you know, and uh, Gavi get into hopes that you can actually make even patented vaccines affordable because they are buying in huge volumes. So I think from that point of view, you have a negotiating power to basically negotiate a good price irrespective of whether it's patented or not. I think patent protection is very important to drive innovation. So if you just tell people that, by the way, all vaccine makers will not be able to protect their technologies with patents, I think the fear is that you won't get enough innovation taking place in coming up with new vaccines. So I think it would be counterproductive to enforce Uh, compulsory licensing of all vaccines. And in any case, I for one believe that these technologies are pretty complex. And many of these companies like Moderna, who makes these uh, mRNA vaccines, have actually suspended their patents during the pandemic. And it's not like people have gone rushing making a Moderna vaccine, because it's not that easy. You know, there is a huge process of getting to where they are today. And therefore, just insisting on, you know, vacating patents is not going to solve the problem. But equally, I think you must understand that there is a trade-off between patents and pricing. And I think there needs to be a good model where companies are able to negotiate a fair price for themselves and health systems and countries also should get a fair price to vaccinate their populations. And this pandemic actually has shown that it can be done. Because if you look at it, if you are able to charge between 3 to even 10 or 15 dollars a vaccine dose, it's not hugely prohibitive. I mean, even in India today, our own homemade co-vaccine is also wanting to charge 20 dollars for a vaccine. And the Indian government doesn't seem to be flinching on that. So if that is the case, then, you know, most vaccines are within that affordable category, so to speak. 
So I think that uh, it is all going to depend on how much vaccine you're going to buy. It's going to depend on obviously vaccine inadequacy and vaccine adequacy. You know, the prices are going to, I think, differ from time to time. Because I'm very confident that in the foreseeable future, it is going to move from inadequacy to abundance. Because there are so many vaccines now under development which are going to be approved that within a year, I think you will have a huge access to vaccines. And that is going to be the time when vaccine manufacturers are going to then start having a market competition to see who can sell the most vaccines. And that is the time when I feel that the pricing is also going to normalize in a very fair way. At this point in time, I still think that various agencies have basically uh, contracted for vaccines at a fair price. And this is the one time where I feel that things haven't gone badly wrong. Thank you, Kiran. Um, so now I'd like to ask both of you, what gives you hope? that we will come out of this situation sooner rather than later? And what concerns you and what must we learn more about so we can keep our population safe in the future? What gives me hope is that our vaccination program is picking up, that we went back on a decision that was inappropriate for our populations that was setting center and states up against each other. We have the prospect of many more vaccines to come. And as Kiran pointed out, by next year, we will have a lot of vaccine. And we have a strong immunization program. I hope that we will be able to use it well to be able to deliver vaccines with high coverage to everybody. We'll probably need to get down to children as well. So we have a long way to go with the immunization program. But I am hopeful that we will get there and so. What worries me a little, and I'd like to point that out as well, is that we haven't learned to change our behaviors. We do it when we are ordered to. But as soon as restrictions are, are lifted, we go back to what is acceptable for us, crowding, not following rules. And I hope that in the future we will change that. We also need to understand that a lot of our management of our pandemic requires very tailored strategies. We need to move from a one-size-fits-all to tailoring the situation that is around us my home, my workplace, my community, my city, my state. We need to think about how we all play together in these spaces to protect ourselves and protect our communities. We have not learned to do that yet. Well, I agree with Gagandeep. The thing that gives me most hope is the fact that we are vaccinating at, you know, at a pace that we actually can do at the moment and I'm sure it will ramp up in the coming months as we have more access to vaccines. So that actually gives me a lot of hope and it and of course we need to make sure that we get rid of vaccine hesitancy in many many parts of the country especially the rural reaches of our country but at least I'm very hopeful that we will be able to vaccinate a large part of our population over the next maybe 9 to 12 months for sure. 
what really worries me is that you know even during the past uh, year i don't think we've really shared data in a very transparent way and i think there needs to be very good uh, sharing of data there needs to be reliable data so that we can actually create accurate modeling we need surveillance in a big way so we need to be surveillant i think we need to do you know both sort of rapid uh, surveillance uh, testing as well as genomic testing because if we do come up with new findings of new variants we should make sure that we understand what we are getting into i think we do need to make sure that um, we look at data in a way that allows us to be more pragmatic and prognostic in the way we are going about dealing with the pandemic so overall i'm very optimistic that we will be in a much better place i hope that we never have to see this kind of mortality rates and hospitalization that we've seen during the second wave largely because we were unprepared and because we were complacent and i hope that apart from vaccination we also develop medicines that can also help us to treat these uh, infected people uh, in a way that doesn't see them in hospitals or on ventilators so i think those are some of the things i'm hoping for and um, overall i think i'm very optimistic that i hope this year next time we will have a, an environment that is almost back to normal i get two lessons from this conversation with both of you one is the matter of scale and this is where the center is in the best position to be playing a more determined role in procuring vaccines in bulk at a fair price from all private producers second is the matter of equitable distribution and determining who gets the vaccines in a system in a community in a town and this is where the people themselves along with the experts and the private and the public sector must work together with the understanding that unless everyone is safe no one is safe so we need a few large scale interventions from the center as well as many on the ground solutions in order to work towards a scenario where everyone in the country is vaccinated or has access to the vaccination program thank you both very much gagandeep and kiran for taking time out for this discussion today On the contrary is produced by Rachita Vora, Smarinita Shetty and me Shreya Adhikari. This episode was hosted by Arun Maira for IDR. Production by Made in India. IDR is an online journal that publishes cutting-edge ideas, lessons and insights written by and for the people working on some of India's toughest problems. You can check us out at idronline.org. or find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter or LinkedIn. If you like our show, please do subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts from so more people can find out about us. You can also email us on write to us at idronline.org. Thank you for listening and see you next week.